Good morning. Enter by the narrow gate, for the gate is wide, and the way is easy that leads to destruction, and those who enter by it are many. For the gate is narrow, and the way is hard that leads to life, and those who find it are few. Beware of false prophets who came to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly are ravenous wolves. You will recognize them by their fruits. Are grapes gathered from thorn bushes or figs from thorn bushes? So every healthy tree bears good fruit, but the diseased tree bears bad fruit. A healthy tree cannot bear bad fruit, nor can a diseased tree bear good fruit. Every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. Thus you will recognize them by their fruits. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father who is in the heaven. On that day many will say to me, Lord, Lord, we did not prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name, and do many mighty works in your name. And then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. Everyone then who hears these words of mine and does them will be like a wise man who built his house on the rock. And the rain fell, and the floods came, and the winds blew and beat on the house, but it did not fall, because it had been founded on the rock. And everyone who hears these words of mine and does not do them will be like a foolish man who built his house on the sand. And the rain fell, and the floods came, and the winds blew and beat against the house, and it fell, and great was the fall of it. And when Jesus finished these sayings, the crowds were astonished at his teaching. For he was teaching them as one who had authority, and not as the scribes. Thank you. Well, good morning, everyone. Very glad to be with you this morning, especially if you're visiting us for the first time and joining us for the first time today. Uh, very special welcome to you, and we're very glad to have you with us. Please do keep a Bible open there at Matthew chapter 7. We'll be looking at that passage that Rainier read for us. Can I just say before we kick off that the, um, the meeting, the safe ministry meeting after the service today, will kick off at about 10 o'clock, so feel free to enjoy morning tea first. Uh, and just note, this is for anyone who's involved in any kind of ministry that involves people. It's an important part of serving the gospel, that we do it in a safe way. Uh, and if you're thinking about getting involved in a ministry next year that involves people, whether they're little people or big people, um, please be at that meeting afterwards. It'll only be half an hour. We're just explaining a few things ready for next year. Great. Well, how about we pray, and then we'll get into that passage together. Our Father in heaven, where else can we go? Your Son Jesus alone has words of eternal life. Please let us hear his words this morning with wisdom to build our lives on them so that we may be sure of entering the kingdom of heaven. Please hear our prayer made in Jesus' name. Amen. Now, we live in what's sometimes been called the information age. 
We've got more information about more topics than ever before in human history. Academic research, books, TV shows, radio shows, podcasts, blogs, audiobooks, social media, online videos, 24-hour newscasts, and the list goes on. Uh, the big four internet com companies, Google, Amazon, Facebook, and Microsoft, it's estimated that they hold 1.2 uh, million terabytes of data between them. Uh, to put that in perspective, some have estimated it would take 11 trillion years to download it all. And I'd imagine longer if you're on the NBN. But the amount of information that's available for the average person to consume is just staggering. And in the Christian sphere, it's no different. You know, on our, on our phones, we can, with the tap of a screen, we can swap between multiple translations, multiple versions of the Bible. We have the amazing ability to listen to world-renowned and very faithful teachers and preachers of God's Word without ever setting foot in their churches or even being on the same continent as them. So I'm very encouraged that you're all here this morning when you could have sat at home listening to the latest gem from John Piper or Timothy Keller. Uh, popular sermon recording website, sermonaudio.com, they've got a library of over 2 million sermons. That means if each of those sermons was 30 minutes long, it would take you 114 years to listen to them. And of course, that's not counting all the podcasts and books and blog posts and audio books and booklets and Facebook posts and live stream church services and all sorts of other media that are available to help us and equip us in our Christian walk. All this information, though, has created something of a crisis. And the crisis is how we sift through all of it to find something that's worth building our lives on. Because we know there's a big difference between information and knowledge, and between knowledge and wisdom. Uh, the famous American novelist Michael Crichton, who also wrote Jurassic Park, he once said, the greatest challenge facing mankind is the challenge of distinguishing reality from fantasy, truth from propaganda. Perceiving the truth has always been a challenge to mankind, but in the information age, or as I like to think of it, the disinformation age, it takes on a special urgency and importance. Living in this age, then, I don't think we can miss the response of the crowds to Jesus' words in verse 29. When Jesus finished these sayings, it says, the crowds were astonished at his teaching, for he was teaching them as one who had authority and not as their scribes. There is clearly something in the Sermon on the Mount that we mustn't miss. Have they perceived truth here? Have, in fact, have we perceived truth in what Jesus has said? Now, we're finally coming to the end of Jesus' Sermon on the Mount this morning, after spending eight weeks in these three chapters of Matthew's Gospel. And as Jesus moves to a close in his sermon, he he challenges his hearers and us with just one question. And the question is, what are you going to do with his teaching? What are you going to do with everything that Jesus has said? So please have your Bibles open with you. There's an outline on the service sheets. Follow where we're going. We're going to take the text in those four divisions that we have in our Bibles, which are really four statements about Jesus' teaching to help us make a right decision about it. So point one, Jesus' teaching is not popular. Uh, I've lost my slides. There we go. The first thing that Jesus needs us to know in verse 13 to 15 is, for those who follow him, his teaching is not going to be popular. 
It's countercultural. It belongs to an entirely different kingdom. And so Jesus uses a short parable about two gates, two ways, or two roads to make a very important point about his teaching that it never has and never will be popular. The one gate is wide, the way it leads is easy. Many enter it, it's popular, but it leads to destruction. The other gate is narrow. The way it leads is hard. Few people find it. It's not popular, but it leads to life. This is graphically illustrated in, a, an, an, in the news last week when the ABC interviewed some leaders from an Australian church that advocate and affirm worldly ideas about sexuality and gender rather than biblical ones. And one of those leaders interviewed said, There's this weird narrative that you hear about people being discriminated against or persecuted for their faith in Australia, and that's baffling to me. Now, I'll let you know I'm not interested in criticizing other people from the pulpit, but I think we've got to be honest here and say that if you're virtually indistinguishable from the world around you, that's hardly surprising. On the other hand, we've got to be careful about having some sort of persecution complex. I think we have a very privileged existence as Christians in Australia when you compare it to some other parts of the world. But remember that the core of Jesus' sermon is this idea that his people belong to another kingdom. And if you adopt the standards and teaching of the kingdom of this world, and this kingdom recognizes you as one of its own, and the gate is wide and the way is easy you've got to ask yourself some serious questions about which kingdom you belong to. If following Jesus has never caused you to make difficult decisions about your values, your ethics, your relationships, your associations, your priorities, your time, your money, then are you really building your teaching on, that of the, on your life on the teaching of the Lord Jesus Christ? If the road feels wide and easy, it's probably the wrong road. We simply cannot evaluate Jesus' teaching based on whether or not it's popular if lots of people follow it or whether or not it's acceptable in the world. There's no way to bring Jesus' teaching up to date or to reevaluate it by the current socio-cultural trends of the day without completely rejecting the heart of the message. Jesus' teaching is not popular, but it leads to life. It's a narrow and hard way but it leads to life. So that's the first point. Jesus' teaching is not popular. Secondly, in verse 15 to 20, Jesus' teaching only bears good fruits. Jesus knows that we don't only need to discern between the way of the world and the way of his kingdom. We also need to discern between those who claim to teach the ways of the kingdom and those who actually do. So he says in verse 15, Have a look there with me. Beware of false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly are ravenous wolves. Now, prophets in the Bible are rarely those who tell the future. More often, prophets are those who tell God's words to call God's people back to God himself in repentance and faith. So in a way, what I'm doing this morning is is prophesying. But sadly, Jesus promises that there will be those who will present themselves as preachers and teachers of God's word, but who are actually wolves in sheep's clothing. In other words, they look like the real deal on the surface, but in reality, they are deadly and destructive to God's people. 
How can we recognize these false prophets? Well, verse 17, their ministry doesn't produce good fruits. In other words, what they proclaim and teach, even if it sounds right and it's about the right stuff, it doesn't result in the kind of behavior and priorities that Jesus has been promoting in the sermon. So take, for example, the tragic epidemic of abusive church leadership that's being exposed more and more in churches around the world. Men who preached the gospel, who had thriving ministries, who had lots of apparent impacts, but who led by force, not love, bullying and trampling those who did not get on board with them and leaving a trail of battered and bleeding fellow Christians in their wake, people Jesus died for. We should get as far away as possible from these people. As Jesus says, they will be judged. Verse 19, every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. There's a story from after the Bible was written about the Apostle John, one of Jesus' apostles, who went to the bathhouse one day with his disciples. And when he got there, he bumped into a prominent uh, false teacher called Corinthus. And we're told by a disciple of a disciple of John that when John met Corinthus, he turned on his heel and ran out of the bathhouse, 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 that's a difficult word to say, with his disciples shouting, let us fly lest even the bathhouse fall down because Corinthus, the enemy of the truth, is inside. Did not want to be anywhere near the guy because he was worried about what God might do to him. So how do we recognize true prophets, true teachers of God's word? Well, their ministry will result in good fruits. A true prophet, a faithful proclaimer of God's word, will not be recognized by a large, slick ministry, a big staff team under him, a catalog of best-selling books, or millions of YouTube or podcast listeners. A true prophet, a faithful proclaimer of God's word, will be recognized by being poor in spirit, by mourning over their sin, by meekness, by hungering and thirsting after righteousness, by mercy, by purity of heart, by being a peacemaker, by enduring persecution and encouraging others to do the same. Thus you will recognize them by their fruits. Verse 20. Now, I personally find this very humbling as a preacher and teacher of God's word. And some of you might have been hurt by the bad fruit of false teachers. I want to recognize that. What good news then that following Jesus isn't just about following those through whom we receive his words. There's our third point this morning. The third thing that Jesus needs his disciples to know is that his teaching needs a relationship with the teacher. That's our third point today. Verse 21 to 23. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. And I think there's a scary Bible verse, if ever there was one. Because I call Jesus Lord every time I pray. Does that mean I'm in danger of being turned away at the gate when I get to heaven? I want you to notice something else here before we actually answer that question. The way Jesus refers to himself in the sermon changes dramatically in these verses. Do you notice that? Suddenly, he's no longer the Jewish rabbi on the hillside proclaiming and preaching the kingdom of God. Now he is God's own son, standing at the gates of heaven, welcoming some and turning others away. 
Many claim that Jesus Christ is just another religious leader. So he's, he's just like Muhammad or Buddha or Moses or Zoroaster or, or Confucius. But no, what Jesus says here puts him in a category entirely of his own. What we choose to do with Jesus then truly is a life or death decision, one which will impact our eternal existence. And Jesus says that it's not just those who say the right things who will enter the kingdom of heaven. You can call Jesus Lord, you can go to church. You can read your Bible. You can be part of a small group. You can serve in a ministry. You can be a pastor. You can know theological stuff. You can prophesy and cast out demons, as Jesus says, in his name, and still be denied access. Listen to how one Bible teacher describes the issue. What better Christian profession could be given? Here are people who call Jesus Lord with courtesy, orthodoxy, and enthusiasm in private devotion and in public ministry. What can be wrong with all this? In itself, nothing. And yet everything is wrong because it is talk without truth, profession without reality. It will not save them on the day of judgment. Jesus says only one thing is going to get you in, and that's verse 21, is doing the will of my Father who's in heaven. What is the Father's will? I think we can answer that from verse 23. Then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. The Father's will that will get us into heaven is that we know Jesus. Now, notice in the section, though, that there's a clear contrast between saying something and doing something. And I think... Somehow we've got to do knowing Jesus. And I want to suggest this is crucial to what Jesus is saying here and crucial to the entire sermon. As Bible-believing Christians, of course, we know that there is nothing we can do to earn our salvation. Jesus has paid it all. And yet here we're being told we kind of need to do knowing Jesus in order to get into heaven. What does it mean? Let me put it like this, and I think this fits into what Jesus is getting at in in his Sermon on the Mount. Put it like this. By living out the righteousness that Jesus has achieved for us, we know the Lord Jesus and confirm our place in his kingdom. By living out the righteousness that Jesus has achieved for us, we know the Lord Jesus and confirm our place in his kingdom. In other words, living out that righteousness that Jesus bought for us at the cross, it doesn't earn our place in the kingdom. Jesus has done that. But it allows us to know Jesus more and confirm our place in his kingdom. So take, for example, Jesus' teaching on anger back in chapter 5. And imagine a man or woman who claims to be a Christian, goes to church, who reads their Bible, who does ministry, but continues to be an angry person with no interest in dealing with that part of their life, no interest in being the kind of person who wants to reconcile with those that they've wronged, who never says sorry, can you truly say they're a member of Christ's kingdom? Well, you can't say they aren't, but you can't say they are either. Their place in the kingdom is actually in doubt. But imagine instead a person who works hard at their anger, who learns to absorb hurt and injustice, who learns to swallow their pride, 
learns to humbly go and seek forgiveness for those they've wronged. They remind themselves of the greater injustice and greater hurt that Jesus suffered for their sake, greater than they will ever suffer. They learn something of what Jesus went through for them at the cross. They remind themselves that they've been forgiven everything by Jesus, so they're eager to go and ask others to forgive them. So they know they've got nothing to lose, and they fear nothing because they loved and accepted by Jesus forever. And they lean into Jesus' righteousness moment by moment to strengthen them against anger and to help them be a peacemaker. Would you say that they're a Christian? I think so, as far as we can tell anyway. But you see how living Jesus' way enables this person to know Jesus. We want to know Jesus more, don't we? And often we'll go to sermons and books and read our Bibles more and try different devotional practices or different prayer practices. And they're all good things. But I think often knowing Jesus more just really comes down to living his way. The hard, narrow, unpopular way, which forces us to let go of the things of the world and cling more tightly to Jesus. What better way to get to know Jesus? Think of the Beatitudes, those statements describing the the blessed people of the kingdom. At the heart of the Beatitudes in, in Matthew 5, 3 to 12, you've got the character of Jesus. Who better to go to to teach us to live for his kingdom? To learn to be poor in spirit, to learn meekness, to learn mercy. Well, go to Jesus. See, through living his way, we get to know Jesus more. I think this is exactly what Paul was getting at in Philippians 3 when he wrote from his jail cell, Philippians 8 and 12, Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. I'm jumping down a bit. Not that I have already obtained this or am already perfect, but I press on to make it my own because Christ Jesus has made me his own. By living out the righteousness that Jesus has achieved for us, we get to know the Lord Jesus and confirm our place in his kingdom. Well, let's get to our final point this morning. Jesus' teaching is the only firm foundation. And this parable in verse 24 to 28, it really sums up everything we've been hearing from Jesus uh, today and all the way through the sermon. It's a well-known Sunday school story. Some of us might remember the song that goes with it. But yes, imagine two owner builders, and they're free from construction delays and labor shortages and all sorts of other building industry difficulties, and they're finally getting to work building their dream homes on the land they've selected. Uh, One has chosen a nice bit of uh, property on Budrum Mountain with a nice view. He's got a bit of volcanic rock to contend with, but he sinks his foundations down, and in no time he's, it's up and he's moved in with his family. And then the other bloke, he wants to be as close to the beach as possible. So he's managed to snag one of the last remaining beachfront blocks down at Cotton Tree, right next to the caravan park, you know, where the, uh, the sandbags are. Foundations go in very easily on the soft sand. House is up in no time. Pretty soon he's having his morning coffee on the back deck looking out over the beach and trying to ignore the walls of sandbags on each side. 
Next February, a furious cyclone rips through. The house on the rock, well, that's built on a firm foundation. It survives unscathed. But as for the second house, there's a hole where it used to be, where the sea has come up and carved out the beach and just a scatter of debris everywhere. What's the point of the parable? Well, Jesus tells us in verse 24, everyone then who hears these words of mine and does them will be like a wise man who built his house on the rock. In verse 26, everyone who hears these words of mine and does not do them will be like a foolish man who built his house on the sand. Could it be clearer? The one who builds his life or her life on Jesus' words will endure. The one who builds their life on anything else will have everything they worked so hard for completely destroyed. In these last two sections of the, of the, of the chapter, uh, from verse 21, we suddenly shift gears completely and the final judgment is in view. And it turns out that our relationship with Jesus and what we do with his words, excuse me, are going to determine what happens to us at the final judgment. And so as we end our time in Jesus' Sermon on the Mount, we're left with a call to strain our ears through the noise of the information age, friends, and hear the life-giving words of Jesus and to build our lives on them. These countercultural words of the one who fulfills the law and the prophets, who grants a greater righteousness, who reframes obedience to the Father as living out his righteousness rather than trying to achieve our own self-righteousness and the one who gives entry into the Father's kingdom. This is real life. To reject what Jesus says, to build our lives on anything else or any other teacher, of course, only leads to, it leads to death and destruction and disappointment and loss. Which will you choose? Will you choose real life? And let me say to you, if you're here this morning and you've never actually chosen Jesus, uh, why not make today that day? Chat to a trusted Christian friend and ask for their help. Uh, come chat to me or Tim after the service. Ask whatever questions you want. We'd love to pray for you and help you. But maybe today is the day where you choose life and choose Jesus. Of course, the sermon also fires a shot across the bow of anyone who will try to presume their place in the kingdom uh, because of their own self-righteousness or their religious dedication or because they pay lip service to being a Christian and a follower of Jesus. If that's you, well, there's still time to do business with God and to sort that out. And let me suggest that maybe Jesus' prayer in chapter 6 of the sermon is a great place to start. You know, the one thing we cannot be after hearing the words of Jesus on the, on, on the mount, the sermon, we cannot be the same. So will you hear Jesus' call to live real life? Well, that, let's pray. I'd like to give some time for you to take on your own in silent reflection, maybe think about the things we've said this morning, the things we've read over the last eight weeks. Consider what Jesus has said, what you need to do with it. And in a moment, I'd love us to turn back to chapter 6 and verse 9 of the sermon and pray the Lord's Prayer together as we close.
We're going to close by praying the words Jesus taught his disciples to pray in Matthew chapter 6, verse 9. You're welcome to pray along with me. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come. Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we have also forgiven our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, we're going to stand together and sing now as we close. In Christ Alone. What a great song to finish uh, the sermon series with this morning.